0: Hello, friends, welcome back. My guest today is Gabrielle Bluestone. She's the executive producer of the Fire Festival documentary, an author and a journalist. From failed festivals to fake blood tests, the grifters and scammers of the world seem to be having their time in the spotlight right now. Today, I expect to learn how Billy McFarland, the founder of Fire Festival, has got himself into even more trouble since he's been in jail, why Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos purposefully made her voice lower what we learned from Mike Bloomberg's presidential campaign, whether you can influence your way to a best-selling product, why we're so obsessed with these car crash individuals, and much more. I find it so compelling to follow these sort of stories on the internet. You'll have those people, friends from school or just someone that you know, who their life just seems like a a slow-motion train wreck, but you can't stop watching. And it feels like the individuals that we go through today are kind of the, the Premier League players in that world this episode is brought to you by crafted london finding mens jewelry that doesn't suck is very difficult and crafted london have nailed it they are the number one mens jewelry company worldwide they're sweatproof waterproof heatproof they will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom, and MW15 at checkout. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com/modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com join.whoop.com/modernwisdom slash modern wisdom. And now, it's time to learn about the world's biggest scammers with Gabrielle Bluestone. Gabrielle Bluestone, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: What have you been researching for the last few years?
1: Um, I have been researching why people scam online and why we fall for it.
0: Lots of examples of that to go through, I feel like.
1: Yes. Well, this all came about uh, because I was the reporter who broke the fire Festival story. Um, And for your listeners who don't know what that is, that was um, this luxurious music festival that was advertised as the party of the century. It had some of the world's most beloved models and influencers backing it. Um, a lot of money put into it. And when the ticket holders arrived, it was supposed to be on this beautiful private island flown there by private jets with you know luxurious catered food from celebrity chefs. And when the attendees arrived, uh, they found a gravel pit next to a sandals resort um, that ended up being more luxurious than the festival itself with, instead of these beautiful hotel rooms, it was FEMA tents and IKEA furniture. Um, and so I set about trying to find out how the organizers um, led by billy mcfarland who was fire festival ceo um how they got away with it and why it works so well and i started to realize that it wasn't just them um these scams are going on in pretty much every walk of life whether it's in the tech industry in the media on social media um even the way that we you know a, a regular social media user is presenting themselves to our friends. Like we are all scamming each other and accepting what it is as reality, even though we know better. It's a really fascinating psychological profile as well as a business story.
0: It's kind of just come about as well. Like most people didn't aspire to essentially be con artists you know you'd have the traveling con artist snakes snake oil salesman right going from town to town and grifting and then they'd get found out and then they'd go on to the next town but you are right there's an element of this sort of two lives that we lead the one the front-facing one that we show on public social media and then the the real one that's going on behind the scenes Mm -hmm. yeah I, i don't think that's happened really ever before certainly not at
1: this scale and I think even the most honest people are guilty of it to an extent, right? Like most people are not gonna show the lows of their lives on social media, they're gonna put their best face forward. Um, And even I'm guilty of that, you know, if I'm having a boring day, I'm not putting that on my feed, I'm putting the highlights um, and then presenting that to the public as if that's every day for me. Um, So I think it starts on that most basic level of grift all the way up to the people who are Photoshopping their faces and bodies, who are getting plastic surgery and pretending that it's natural who are, you know, purchasing uh, luxury goods shopping bags on Etsy and then staging photographs as if they have been doing these incredible shopping trips. There's so much just not even to scam. uh, The only thing they're scamming is our perception of them, right? There's so much of it going on. And then all the way up to fake tickets to a music festival that never existed.
0: Talk me through what it was like breaking that story. you done your research and then you pushed a button and then all hell descended on earth.
1: Yeah, so it actually it started a bit earlier than that because I was, you know, I'm a millennial, I was part of that target audience that they were trying to capture. And you know, going to meet Bella Hadid wasn't really something that I was looking to buy but then I saw a high school classmate of mine talking about his artist pass on Instagram and all the benefits that were going to come with it and you know the special food and the the special treats that that come like the artist party was supposed to be this huge party with Kendall Jenner that people were doing so I took a look at it all of a sudden I was like oh my god am I missing this big event that everyone's going to go to I started to feel the FOMO that had been baked into this marketing campaign but when I went to look at the website, like it looked like something someone might have made in like a high school coding class. It was so low rent and so acronistic compared to what they were advertising. You know, if there was really all this money behind it, you would think that their their product would match the marketing. Um, and so that kind of like tingled that spidey sense where I was like, something is not right here. And it was all very... It, it, You know, you think of the story of Cassandra, it seemed so obvious to me that there was something terribly wrong here. Um, And there were people who knew what was going on trying to warn people on social media. I think people were scared to publicly speak out about it because they were afraid of getting sued and getting blamed for the festival's failure. Um, But it was all out there in the open. Any one of these ticket holders could have come across it the same way as me, right? It didn't require this incredible investigative ability. And then it all came crashing down on social media as people landed on the island and started to see what was going on. So um, at that point, my editors uh, allowed me to move forward with the story because even they were like, you know, it's a music festival. Okay, it doesn't live up to all of its claims. That's life. Uh, And I was like, no, it's like way more. Uh, So finally, when you know the cheese sandwich tweet came out, they were like, all right, go publish. Um, And that was kind of like off to the races from there because. Billy McFarland did not stop scamming. Even after he got arrested, uh, he was out on bail and he launched a second set of felonies also targeting people who wanted to live that life that they were seeing on Instagram. So he was selling fake tickets to the Met Gala and to the Victoria's Secret fashion show. And he was targeting the same people. It was the same email list and they continued to fall for it. It is mind blowing.
0: But if your selection effect to find your market was do you want to go to this product that has these particular brand values you've already selected for a very particular group of people who mm-hmm. have a fair bit of money and spend a lot of time on Instagram and probably are interested in the Met Gala and the Victoria's Secrets fashion show and like was it backstage with Miley Cyrus when she'd stopped Taylor doing back Swift. Taylor Swift uh, she yeah. she'd stopped doing backstages like 5 years ago one one of the things that you go through that I thought was so interesting in the book is what Billy's got up to since he went to jail. Can you mm-hmm. detail the laundry list of shit that he's been doing since then?
1: Yeah, it is I mean, this guy just does not stop. It
0: Unrelenting.
1: Is, yeah. Uh so after he got busted for the second set of felonies, um, he got I think he got off pretty lightly. He was sentenced to six years. And when you said it almost, could have been
0: seventy five.
1: Yes. So, I mean, often in like the U.S. judicial system, they will stack all these charges. So it was very unlikely that he was ever going to face anything like that. And a lot of the charges end up running concurrently. But six years was still pretty good. I mean, during his sentencing, he had hired um, a psychiatrist who diagnosed him with a a whole litany of mental issues, uh, but specifically stated that he was not um, an antisocial personality disorder it wasn't like a sociopath or a psychopath, and the judge challenged that contention in her sentencing. She was like, "I don't know if I believe that." You know, she had this phrase that was like, "His fraud, like a circle, has no end." Uh, but then granted him a relatively lenient sentence. And so I think for a normal human being, you would feel very lucky, and maybe reform a bit. Uh, What Billy McFarland did was smuggle a recording device into prison, which he was then caught with. He had been initially sentenced to serve out his time at a prison in upstate New York which was great for his family and his girlfriend because it was not too much of a trip to visit him um, and there were celebrities there you know Donald Trump's former fixer and attorney Michael Cohen was sentenced there uh Billy McFarland was apparently Scrabble buddies and played basketball with Mike the situation Sorrentino who what's was, he in jail for he's out now but he was serving time for tax evasion <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> so you know it was It was like the uh, Instagram VIP list in prison (laughs) until he got busted with a fake pen that had a USB in it. um, And he told the authorities that he was so eager to get started on paying his $26 million restitution that he was going to start uh, writing um, a memoir in prison and the proceeds of which he would give to his victims. Uh, And he was unironically going to title it Prometheus God of Fire. Um the authorities were not impressed by that explanation and so he was sent to solitary confinement which is no joke and you know we can have our own conversation about whether that's ever justified but uh after that he was sent to a new facility in Ohio which was you know a definite step down from where he was and also happened to be the nexus of a covid outbreak that was so bad that the national guard had to be called in Um, and so he tried to get compassionate release, which was unlikely in the first place, but he was knocked out of contention because he had this serious infraction on his record. Um, and then he decided to launch a podcast. And the thing that was interesting about the podcast was that for once he was no longer the marketer, he was the product. Um, and he, you know, he said that he was giving, he had co-owned it and was giving his share towards restitution. According to court documents, he has not paid any restitution at all. Um, but he was put in solitary confinement for participating in this podcast. And his partner on the podcast, um, I'm blanking on their name now. I think it's like Notorious LLC, something like that. They've run um, a series of hype houses in LA. Like they are the Billy McFarland, not in the scammer way, but in the business sense of influencers. Um, in their market. And so when Billy was put into solitary, you know, they weren't campaigning for him to get out. They were bragging about their engagement and how well the New York Times story about it was doing and how the podcast had shot up above Joe Rogan and, you know, was more popular than Kanye. So it was an interesting role reversal because for the first time, Billy was the influencer. He wasn't the guy working the influencer. Um, And so I think he recently got out of solitary again. He had caught COVID in prison. How
0: how did he do the podcast? Was that what you needed the pen for?
1: Uh, No. So he was going to dictate his memoirs. I believe the podcast was just recorded over uh, a prison phone.
0: So he was on Jordan Harbinger's show. Mm
1: -hmm. Billy
0: was on the Jordan Harbinger show calling in from, and sure enough, at the start of it, it's like, this is a call from the United states correction da, 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 press three to reverse charges
1: mm-hmm.
0: um so I knew he'd been guesting, but I didn't know that he'd managed to I mean fair play fair play to for, for doing up so him-
1: I think it might have been in coordination with him like jordan was the host of this podcast oh okay and then they actually repurposed that footage for the abc special um with whoopi goldberg i forget the name of it but so now he's you know he's the product finally for the first time
0: so that wasn't allowed doing a podcast from prison is also not allowed so you got in solitary again for that
1: Yeah. The the specifics of that are a little hazy. I know other other inmates have done prison podcasts with no problem. I'm not sure what exactly the justification for it was, just that that's the fact. I mean, solitary confinement is no joke, and especially in the time of COVID, a lot of this stuff stopped being funny. but it is remarkable that he has continued to get in trouble um, and he's just somehow unable to kind of stop. I firmly believe that once he's out of prison, he will launch something new and I think people will go along with it.
0: The thing, I've had this conversation so many times with people and I've finally got the, the exact person that I want to have it with, and that's you, who produced the Emmy-nominated Fire Festival documentary on Netflix, which everybody that is listening to will have watched because it was phenomenal. Um what I realized upon watching that documentary is that we as a society celebrate success so much that we don't actually mind how people get to success. Mm-hmm. If two different versions of this universe had existed. The first one where Billy McFarland was a prick and did all of this nasty stuff and conned people and was forcing models to get into the water when they didn't want to and kind of playing this playboy lifestyle and doing loads of sort of just grimy stuff and the fire festival didn't work and in another version of the universe all the same stuff happened before but the fire festival hadn't been a total shit show it had been let's say it was it was acceptable and blink 182 didn't pull out and maybe there was tons of problems but there wasn't so many that it was a big deal in that second version of the universe billy mcfarland would have been hailed as a marketing genius he would have yes. been the golden child this guy that managed to wrangle millennials he understood how things worked he was able to manipulate them and move them in the way okay yeah maybe the the festival could have been a bit better but that's operations we need people that can market and sell right that's what we're after and what that told me was that the means justify the ends in a way mm-hmm. that it's like it doesn't really matter how you get there as long as it works so Yeah, that's something I've thought about so much since then, that the only thing that Billy did wrong was run an event that didn't work in the eyes of the Mm -hmm. public.
1: And, you know, the other side of that is I, I firmly believe that had they had the bands go on, that the people who bought tickets would have played along. They would have been posting like they were having the time of their lives because who wants to admit that you spent all this money and aren't enjoying yourself, right? They would have found the right picture. They would have edited the water a little bluer. Um, and I think that speaks to how we all use social media. One thing that really stuck out to me in that documentary was was um, mark weinstein who had been hired as a producer to kind of try and help save it in the end was having the worst time of his life but he would post these beautiful pictures of the bahamas on his instagram and all his friends were very jealous and it was so unreflective of reality um but then also i think you raise a really interesting point and i, I think this has long been true but it's more obvious and evident than ever in social media you know nike sells itself as this Like, you know, they sell themselves as as lifestyle brands. And so we kind of ignore the fact that, you know, their stuff was made in sweatshops or that, you know, these companies that are, you know, supporting different social justice movements, their executive boards don't reflect the values that they are preaching on social media. Um, Uber, for example, created a playbook. They deliberately broke laws. They would come into cities and like just completely ignore any ordinances or any kind of things that they were supposed to observe um because what was going to happen like they would just raise some money until they got kicked out and they had a, a playbook where they would you know mobilize their users to then campaign against the laws that were limiting them so there's there's they're celebrated for that um, even though they've never turned a profit so a lot of it comes down to the way that these things are marketed and not what they actually are
0: do you think uber's a grift
1: i mean it's a real company but i think that our view of it as this, you know, unicorn company that is bringing value is absolutely a grift. I mean, they have destroyed taxi industries. They resolutely refuse to pay their workers what they're worth or to provide them with any kind of benefits. Like people are really suffering and they're celebrated as, you know, this game changing company. Uh, But I think they're game changing in a, a negative way, not a positive way.
0: Did you see that just in London now, they lost a lawsuit? that says they now need to treat their drivers as employees so they can't just have them as self-employed agents, which was the workaround they had for tax and PAYE and national insurance mm-hmm. and all of that other stuff.
1: I was not aware of that, but I think that's a very positive change.
0: Yeah, that was. I think that's one of the reasons why they're able to be so competitive, right? That the other companies have got all of these burdens, like having to actually properly pay the staff and having wages <laughs> and, and uh, like holiday pay and things like that. Um. Yeah. What's Juicero? I'd never heard of this <laughs> until I saw your book.
1: Um. So this was a startup that uh really capitalized on this new kind of healthy lifestyle trend. I think that you see very much online. Um. And juice press and these companies. Uh, that was supposed to be a way for you to easily get fresh-pressed juice every day in your home. Um, and they raised hundreds of millions of dollars for this, and it was hyped as the next big thing. And then it shut down almost overnight because a Bloomberg uh, reporter discovered that it was actually easier— They So part of the business was a machine, and then the other part was a subscription service with the juice in these bags that you would put into the machine like an espresso pod. And it turned out it was actually easier to open the juice bags yourself with your hands than the machine actually was. It was such a waste and such a useless product um, that this video just simply revealing this ended the whole company. No way. There's a lot of that, yeah.
0: And this, had it gone, it wouldn't have gone public by this stage, but was probably in startup, had had some funding, was selling a lot of products.
1: Yeah, I don't recall the specifics about how far they got towards an IPO, but I mean, you saw the same thing with WeWork, right? And what brought WeWork down was the fact that they had to put down on paper the actual value of the company. And, you know, that company was shrouded in this new age mysticism. I mean, it was an office uh, space releasing company. There was nothing mystical or even technological about it. But because Adam Newman was so charismatic and because he got an investor who was willing to give any kind of money uh, with um, Maya son and um, I forget the name of the fund now, I'm blanking on it, but it, you know, funded by the Saudis. there was a lot of money floating around. They were able to sell it as this global revolution um, that was worth you know billions of dollars. And then when it came down to it, it really was not worth very much at all.
0: What's your favorite Adam Newman story?
1: Um, you know, I think it speaks to why people invest money with these kinds of people. There's a very famous anecdote um, after he had uh, obtained office space in the Woolworth building, which is an iconic building in downtown New York. Um, He brought a couple of his employees up for like an after hours visit to see the space. And um, (laughs) I guess there were these like half empty bottles of beer on the floor and he told his employees to drink it and they did. And then he told us, you know, it was an unsecured, uh, construction space. And he told his employees who were drunk at this point to go close to the edge. And they did, they would have literally followed him off the ledge of this building. If he had asked, um, for what, you know, it's really kind of incredible
0: the downfall of WeWork. there are some amazing youtube documentaries that have been done anyone that wants to go and check out more about that i also did a podcast with i'm blanking on the the guy's name but an awesome author that wrote an entire book about that um one of my favorite stories from the last few years the biggest grift or one of the biggest grifts was theranos and elizabeth Mm -hmm. holmes can you take us through some of your favorite parts of that story
1: yeah, I mean, this is another example where investors, were in, I mean, in VCs especially, and especially I think because they aren't necessarily investing their own money, they're investing other people's money, and even if they lose money on these investments, they're still making a percentage on how much money they're handling, right? So they win no matter what. Um, And so they tend not to invest in the product or the company, they are investing in the founder. And so Elizabeth Holmes crafted this persona, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg, she was an Ivy League dropout. She um, deliberately lowered her voice and kind of faked it to have a more mysterious persona. She almost exclusively wore black turtlenecks because she wanted to be more like Steve Jobs. And so these like really professionally wealthy people fell for it, hook, line, and sinker, right? You had like the Walton family that owns Walmart giving her hundreds of millions. You had Henry Kissinger serving on her board of directors. Um, and even the media fell for it. There was like a fairly fawning New Yorker profile of her before John Carrey, you uh, at, um, oh my God, uh, the Wall Street Journal was able to kind of expose that these blood tests that she had been touting never existed, nobody had ever seen them. Um, and I think it speaks to just how once she, she had one of the right names on board, right? Once there was a Kissinger or a Walton associated, I don't think anyone else did any due diligence. They saw that, oh, this person's doing it, so I'm going to do it, and just jumped on the bandwagon. It was almost like um, like a billionaire's FOMO.
0: You uh, draw an analogy between, I think, covid the Tesla stock price, and some of the um, personalities that we're talking about here. It kind of goes back to what we were saying before, but turned up to 11 in Silicon Valley, and especially in the VC world. These unicorns are chasing after these billion-dollar valuations. It's so sought after that people are prepared to forgive all manner of sins in the desperate attempt to chase these wins. Mm -hmm. And it's because the ability to generate cash has now been completely decoupled from what the business can actually deliver to the market and is purely based on market sentiment.
1: Yes. And, and on, you know, how much of the market they can hold themselves. A lot of the valuations of these companies are not, most of them are not reflections of, you know, what their actual income is or what they're actually doing. It's how much money other people have put into it. Um, so it's all, I mean, part of my language, but it's all bullshit. Uh, and it's, you know, I this this even dates back to Billy McFarland. Um, he was by the time he got to Fire Festival, and I think one of the reasons he was able to get people to give him north of twenty six million dollars for this thing was because he had a record that looked on its face to match what you would expect of someone in that world he had started um a tech startup while he was in college called spling that was intended to be kind of a google circles uh reddit hybrid that went absolutely nowhere um if you read the book you can you'll hear kind of my exploration of how he conned all his college classmates and you know camp friends into pretending to be users on the site just to juice up the numbers for investors. But he walked away with a couple hundred thousand just for that. And when it shut down, rather than being seen as a failure, he was suddenly viewed as a successful startup founder because he had gotten the money. What happens after you get the money, people don't seem to really care about
0: what is the single thread or what are the commonalities that you have found since researching all of these different people, the Adam Newmans, the Elizabeth Holmes, the jar rules. um, What is it that you found as the common character traits between them all?
1: Um, Most of them tend to be incredibly charismatic. And I think it comes down to marketing ability. And I think that includes the Elon Musks and the Donald Trumps uh, as well. Um, How good are they at marketing? And as consumers, I think that we have started to collectively accept hype in lieu of the real thing. Right? We're we're taking that marketing and running with it without ever questioning um, how real any of it really is.
0: What I find really interesting, I come from a nightlife background, so I've run a lot of club nights uh, over the last Mm -hmm. 14 years. And um, all that we're playing with in my industry is hype. That's it. Because you can be a different promoter to me and you can start a club night in the same venue that I run, but two days later with similar DJs or maybe even the same DJs with similar drinks prices, with similar looking decor, with a similar looking brand. So all... That we are competing on are the intangibles, because the tangibles from the actual product to the experience, the venues the same, the entrance is the same, the staff are the same, the drinks are the same, even the glasses you're drinking them out of are the same. So mm-hmm. it's all about the intangibles, and um, that really sort of gave me a, a black pill on, um, <laughs> high, on hype. It's like an early black pill on it, because I saw how vacuous most of the marketing that was being done around this stuff is. That you can you can build people up, and there are so many. Natural cognitive biases that we all have, that we all fall for, and that's obviously what all of these different people are tapping into. They're just doing it on such a huge scale with so many millions and millions of dollars on the line.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think an interesting element of nightlife, too, and granted, it's been a year or so since I've been to a club, but. Me, too. Um, is that it really revolves around influencer marketing, too, right? It comes down to the promoters and, you know, what models they can pull in or what people with social media followings they can get to advertise it. And so it becomes associated with those faces as well. Um, And then another thing that's interesting too is, uh, you know, I grew up in New York City, which is very nightlife heavy, club heavy, and a lot of places will advertise, you know, a celebrity who's stopping by. Um, And you know, realistically speaking, you're not going to meet them. They're going to be in a VIP area separate from the club goers. You know, it's not, you're not going to the club with them, but it allows you to pretend on social media that you were. Um there's like a lot of, of I was at the party with
0: dot 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 I was at the party with exactly. 50 Cent with Ja Rule with whoever it might be. Um and that
1: actually happened to me once when I was uh, very young Ja Rule did a, a night at this club called Stereo and you know he's DJing for like a, a, more high school kids than that club would probably want to admit. Um but yeah, you know, I wasn't surprised to see him pop back up with fire.
0: Yeah, it is interesting that sort of that low-key flex that people want they want their status to be legitimized by being around other people who are also successful and this is what we're chasing and so on and so forth why do you think it is that we're so compelled by these individuals i there's something so fascinating about an adam newman and an elizabeth holmes and a Billy McFarland, and when I watch the documentaries like yours about them, I have the same emotion. I can't describe it. I, it's one of those ones, you know, we need like a German word. I need a, there'll, there'll be a German word for it. Um, it's not schadenfreude. It's not me taking pleasure at somebody else's mis- misfortune. It's more disbelief that there are people that can do that probably – in my less gracious moments, there's a bit of admiration around mm-hmm. their capacity to do that. I think, God, how stupid are these people? But I'm, I'm one of those stupid people that probably would have at least been bought in. I remember seeing the orange squares on Instagram and thinking, oh, that looks interesting. I wonder what's going on there. What do you think it is? Why are we so compelled to well- watch these people?
1: Part of it, um, and I think you tapped on that a little bit, is that uh, there's this weird element where people don't tend to feel a lot of sympathy for victims of fraud. I think it's like a human psychology that you look at someone who fell for something and you kind of think, well, I would never fall for that. Um, And there is like, you have a begrudging admiration for the people that can pull that off. I think it's the same reason that uh, we love watching cult documentaries or you know reading about things like that. you know, it's, it, these people are incredibly charismatic. They are, you know, very interesting and fun and engaging to watch. And I think if you're watching it with that mentality, like I wouldn't fall for that. Like I would probably see through that. Um, it becomes more of like a a fun, a fun experience than, um, you know, watching someone commit a crime, which is really what it is. Uh, but also you mentioned with the orange squares, you know, you can see, the way people react to that, one of the most fascinating things about that campaign to me was not the people that participated in it, but the influencers who saw it happening and started posting orange squares themselves because they didn't want to be perceived as not being part of it. Um, And so they actually had a lot of...
0: So they got free extra influencer clout from the FOMO of influencers that Fuck Jerry hadn't put on the campaign.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I've read this is actually a real issue for some companies. I think Evian was one of them, um, where influencers who want to look like they are working or being engaged by these blue chip brands will post fake advertisements because they want their followers to perceive them as being on a certain echelon of influencers. I mean, it really is a wild west out there.
0: That's so crazy because is there anything that the companies can do? Can they say, can they sue really. a, an influencer for doing free advertising for them?
1: I haven't seen that. I have seen some companies go after influencers for not properly advertising for them. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. uh, Snapchat and Spectacle did that with one influencer. There's a little bit of that. But, um, you know, there's not much There's not much recourse, right? And uh, even for influencers who aren't labeling things as ads in the U.S., like the government should ostensibly have some kind of way to stop it or enforce the fact that these are supposed to be clearly labeled as ads you know uh but they can't the most they can do is send a strongly worded letter that an influencer can promptly (laughs) ignore uh so yeah there's there's really not much anyone can do
0: didn't you say that kylie jenner tweeted at some point that she she was using snapchat less and they then wiped one billion off snapchat's valuation the next morning on the stock market
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the Kardashians are their own insane case study in, in watching the markets they can move and the perceptions that they can create. Um, You know, the book also looks at Kylie Jenner's uh, billionaire status, which, um, according to Forbes, which bestowed that status on her, they say that she had actually submitted fake tax forms to pretend that she was earning more money than she was. You know, we're talking about the difference of a couple hundred million, but that perception in the public was so important to them um, and obviously generates so much money for them that they were willing to allegedly, you know, scam a, a magazine
0: what other jenna kardashian stories did you look at
1: um so this isn't in the book but one that i've been fascinated by recently is uh what happened with chloe kardashian um maybe a week or two ago in which a very normal unedited photograph of her was posted on the internet and um apparently it's not clear who posted it they're saying that it was maybe her grandmother Um, but however it was this picture got out and you know they keep a very and this actually is in the book they are so protective of their image that they actually work with paparazzi agencies to do staged and edited photos of them so a lot of the pictures that you'll see of them are actually prepared on their behalf they're meant to look candid but they're very much part of a photo shoot to embellish their images Um, and so when this real photo of Chloe got sent around, Um, her attorney started uh, issuing cease and desists to Instagram accounts, to Reddit uh, threads and boards, uh, which had the opposite effect. You know, we call it the Stryzand effect of all of a sudden, that's all anyone could talk about. Um, but it was so important to her that people not know what her real body looked like, that, you know, her lawyers would spend Easter weekend doing this. I mean, it is kind of incredible.
0: Yeah, especially given that that's the accurate representation. I, I would love to see the way that this is translated into litigation speak. You represented our client's body accurately, and that is is against her brand values like what and also if it's a grandmother that's such a grandmother thing to do
1: yeah (laughs) um no so they they did it as a copyright issue as you know they they unintentionally verified it as real and by saying that it was their real photo um you know they would issue copyright takedowns on all the social media platforms and one funny way that i've seen some people get around it is by tracing the photo because they drawn uh, like a drawing, um, is transformative enough that they can't come after it with a copyright claim.
0: Shit the bed. Uh, what did you learn about White Claw and Jewel?
1: Um, yeah, a lot of things that we think that we like are really just the results of effective marketing campaigns. Um, so I started tracing this with the rise of Aperol Spritz, which, you know, is a beautiful, easily photographed drink um, that I think you know, if you're being honest with yourself when it comes down to it, like it kind of tastes like a flat Capri Sun. Like it's not that, not not that good, but it became the drink of summer and everyone was ordering it and restaurants were pushing it. And all of a sudden, you know, I felt prey to it and reading about the marketing campaign was kind of a wake up call for me where I was like, I actually don't like this at all, but I, you know, I joined up with the crowd. I felt the FOMO. Um, there's a really interesting 1950s experiment by Solomon Ash where he put a bunch of people in a room and showed them a bunch of straight lines. And they were asked to pick the line that looked closest to the ones on the screen. What the people on the study didn't know was that there were plants in the audience who had been instructed to pick the most obviously wrong answer. And he wanted to see how many people would go along with it. And 75% of the audience picked the obviously wrong answer because, because of peer pressure, um, because everyone else was doing it. So. Yeah, that's how I ended up drinking Aperol Spritzes and then White Claw. You know, they, they that was a traditional Aperol was a traditional campaign. Um, you know, they did bus wraps and magazine advertisements as well as social media white claw was a purely social media push right and it blew up you can actually track the sales to a viral youtube video that featured you know a young white frat guy talking about how there ain't no laws when you're drinking claws and the virality of that video pushed this drink into the public consciousness i think the sales of spiked seltzer like went up like 400 percent or something crazy like that i don't recall the exact figure, but you saw a like, demonstrable result from that. And now everyone's just drinking it. It really is incredible <laughs> what, a, what a marketing campaign can do.
0: I've got, so I haven't had a drink for about a thousand days because I, I was taking a break. I've got a case of white claw delivered by their UK marketing office. I've got one in the kitchen. <laughs> I shit you not. Hey, Chris, you look like the sort of guy that would enjoy a white claw. I'm like, we're English. We don't know whatever you're referring to, whatever brand values you think you're responding to my brand values with, I don't know what you're talking about. I just see it in country music meme pages that I follow. But, um, yeah, it's the same as, is it Michlob? Oh, Mickelob? Mickelob, yeah, sorry. I actually
1: don't know much about that one. It just
0: looks the same. You know, it's kind of Mm -hmm. the Whiskey Row, country music, Nashville kind of, that whole yeah. world and what about jewel is jewel the same as white claw cuz i thought that um, was i thought jewel was like the leader in interchangeable nicotine Vaping For a while,
1: they were. They kind of disappeared almost overnight in the U.S. at least, um, I believe like between 2019 and 2020. Um, and that company just imploded. Uh, it turned out they had they have been accused by former employees of knowingly selling tainted pods. You know, the, the nicotine industry is its own problem. Um, but, you know, you see these things go viral. Like someone shows it on social media and then, you know, 10 more people go into it um and i don't know <laughs> it's it's a little disconcerting
0: yeah have you is there a um are there some companies or some agencies that are all pulling the strings are there some are there a few big players behind the scenes in terms of ad agencies or are these in-house marketing departments in smart companies that are just looking out with a good meme or
1: marketing campaign i think i combination of both. Um, I was lucky to really get to delve into everything that happened with the fire festival. So, and that goes down to like the internal communications that they were having with their PR firm, 42 West. Who you know have repped people like Rihanna and really massive stars, um, so they really know how the publicity game is played. And to see the way that they were spinning those things in real time, and to read those communiques was definitely very eye opening. What was it like? You know, like uh, nobody is. it's never like how can we tell the truth it's like how can we take a nugget of truth and transform it into something completely different that will allow us to maintain plausible deniability Um, and you know there's a lot of emails in the book that I won't try to recount here now but in terms of you know how they were going to make the public believe that the models had some input or some involvement beyond this commercial that they had been paid to film or how to trick the public uh, into thinking that certain artists were involved. Um, There was a whole line of inquiry into roping Kanye West into it. Um, You know, they had people working on Christmas Day trying to craft these press releases. So that machine really never stops.
0: What did you learn from Mike Bloomberg's presidential campaign?
1: Uh, Well, I think the short answer is you can only buy so much, Uh, you know, that he put hundreds of millions, I think, a billion dollars into a very short-lived campaign that won him one territory, not even a full state. Um, But it also shows you how much credibility you can buy. and I guess also the the extent of influencer marketing, um, because you have to have people, I guess, that are either believe in the brand or are willing to pretend they believe in the brand. A lot of people took money from the Bloomberg campaign to act as an influencer, but then were so lackluster in their presentation that Twitter actually started flagging a lot of them as bots uh, because people were just so uninterested in, you know, putting personality into their social media promotion. But he had, you know, thousands of people on the payroll whose only job was to tweet about him or to, you know, upload things on Instagram. And then they actually hired uh, the company behind Fuck Jerry, who did the Fire Festival marketing, to uh, unroll a meme campaign about Bloomberg. So for a while, you would see these, you know, uh, I think the format at the time was like, hey, it's Mike Bloomberg calling. And they'd be like, respond, you know, with something funny, and it would be like a screenshot of their conversation. Um, And yeah, I mean, (laughs) it was, It definitely brought him to the forefront of it. And I think his performance in the debates kind of tanked any momentum that might have been built. Uh, But even Bloomberg himself was kind of scanning people. He had promised all his employees that no matter what happened, he got a lot of legitimate political operatives to come on and work with him as well, because he had promised that whatever happened with his campaign, they would remain employed through the November elections, whether it was with another candidate or with the Democratic National Committee, um, and then just didn't do it, right? He, like, fired all of them and told them that they'd have a special pipeline to apply, but nothing ever came of it, and there's actually a class-action class, loss, class action lawsuit against him now from his former campaign employees.
0: I would be such a shit grifter like that. that I'm <laughs> so bad because I can't... I'm not a good enough liar. I feel far too guilty about doing those sorts of things, and this is... Maybe that is is part of the attraction that we look at these people and we think, oh my God. Maybe maybe they are t- maybe there's a kernel of truth in there. And if we can just wipe away all of the muck off Billy McFarland, he he must be a genius deep down. It can't all be grift. It can't all be just lies and front because I wouldn't be able to do that. The vast majority of people wouldn't be able to do that. Um so maybe that's Maybe that contributes to it. The other thing is, you highlight something really interesting with the Mike Bloomberg affair. When influence is obviously influence, it ceases to be influential.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think when you, when you can see the wizard at work behind the curtain, uh, that takes away from the allure of it for sure. Um, but another thing is like, I actually had a, an opposite experience to what you were saying. You know, there must be some truth under there. Uh, the book details kind of my introduction to this influencer named Danielle Bernstein, who goes by the handle We Are What, and she is immensely popular. And I went into that experience thinking that I knew who she was because I had followed her on Instagram. I knew her brand. I felt like I understood her um, and what I found was so opposite from the values that she was peddling on Instagram talk about that yeah how was it Um, well you know she had we had gotten in contact because she had known the Fire Festival people and had declined to participate in it and I was intrigued you know what she saw that made her decide not to do it Um, and so she was going to do an interview with me Uh, we had set it up and then she also asked me to appear on her podcast and I thought you know why not it's great research Um, so I went and did it and afterwards we made arrangements to do this interview and then when it came time for the interview she was like actually I'm so sorry I'm going to do my own book I can't help you um, and then you know these scandals with her started to come out one after another where she was accused of taking samples from small indie brands and then reproducing them for her very popular clothing line um, and it was just this pattern of taking things and then presenting them as hers on the internet um, that I think I fell into and I think a lot of these brands did uh, and it really made me realize like wow I was totally duped by that persona
0: Wow so It wasn't that you thought there was a kernel of truth; it's you thought it was all truth, and it turned out to be mostly lies.
1: Yes. Yeah. Fuck.
0: (laughs) What does uh, "on the internet, no one knows you're a fraud" mean to you?
1: Um, I think that it is easier than ever to present a version of yourself that has no reflection in reality. Whether that is by changing your image, by posting about things, you know, you saw you. Seen a trend, I think, in the US of people posting about social justice or posting beautiful graphics, uh, but then not living that out in their actual lives offline. Um, you can create whatever persona you want. Uh, and, you know, the, the phrase, the old New Yorker cartoon was on the internet, it was a dog typing. It was on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. I really believe that uh for the most part on the internet no one knows what you're lying about or whether it's real one of my favorite stories in the book actually is an influencer who wanted to convince her followers that she had gone on a vacation to bali and so she went to an ikea and took all these like beautiful photographs on like in the ikea setups you know they have those rooms that they make up and none of her followers realized she deliberately left some of the furniture tags showing in the pictures and nobody noticed
0: the internet i despair at the internet sometimes that's another thing touching on the social justice issue um it seems to me that a lot of people on the internet would rather have malicious or um, non-believing compliance than truthful opposition. So they would rather have somebody make the mouth noises or the phone signals that say that they're a part of whichever movement it may be, even if they don't believe in it, sooner than be neutral and be truthful with it.
1: Yeah. And I think part of that goes along with like the FOMO getting caught up in the trend too. And I think a perfect parallel to fire um, and, you know, the influencers who weren't involved posting the orange square was when you saw uh, all the influencers start posting black squares Um, and, you know, brands were getting in on it. And there was, I forget her name now. I think Danielle something on Instagram who did like a three week check-in or a month later check in with all the brands that had posted a black square to see if any of their marketing materials featured models of color, or if they, you know, they had anyone on the executive board of color. And the vast majority had zero change, zero reflection of these values that they were professing, except for this one performative square. And I think that's the big part of it, is how performative we are online.
0: That's the word over the last year or so that I've heard more than any performative communication and it's dangerous coming from someone i told you before we started i was on love island season one i was the first person through the doors and um if you're not careful if you play a role you can bury the person that you are under so many personas that you don't know who you are anymore and that's Mm -hmm. a really dangerous position to get yourself into because you don't actually have any opinions anymore you don't really know what you think you don't All that you're doing is trying to do the thing that you think the person that you're talking to wants you to do. That's Mm -hmm. how you live your entire life as this kind of second-order removed version of you, sort of this marionette, and you're pulling the strings from above trying to get things to work. It's super, super dangerous, and this is why deception online is so much easier because you can type something in, the words said in the way, there's no nonverbal communication, there's simp- There's mm-hmm. no tone, there's no cadence, there's no nothing. And you have minutes or hours sometimes to prepare the response or the statement or the press release or whatever it might be to come across in precisely the way that you want it to. I think a lot of people are quite bad liars based on my experience. <laughs> I've had some, of the, some people on this show, here's one for you, how have I not thought that we can talk about this? Have you heard of a guy called Brian Rose?
1: No, who's so that? He's
0: the founder of London Real, which is mm-hmm. a podcast, big podcast, been around for quite a while now. Um, Brian's initial business partner, a guy called Nick Gabriel, has just done a podcast episode. Now, Brian did a bunch of live streams on YouTube with David Icke, the conspiracy theory guy. He mm-hmm. did those at the start of the COVID pandemic. And did some phenomenal numbers, like broke broke some records with it. But very quickly got the live streams taken down by YouTube. They said that he was pushing, they were talking about 5G and, <laughs> like, you know, you you, can't, you don't need to know anymore as soon as you hear that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and no matter how much truth was or was not in the live stream, at that time there was a lot of misinformation going around about COVID. And YouTube had decided to take a pretty hardline approach to remove any content that it thought uh contravened uh, or was giving misinformation around covid so then brian decided to start the freedom fund freedom platform fund which was you're going to love this Gabrielle. this is so you he starts his freedom <laughs> this freedom platform fund which is him saying big tech censoring us because we're telling the truth they don't want us to be able to so he attaches himself as this kind of like the vanguard of free speech activists right uh, talking about i th- i thought we had a little thing called freedom of speech some people decided to remind him dude you're in london now we don't have that we don't have the the second <laughs> amendment there's, there's there's you know the first amendment sorry there's not there's none of that here um so he releases this freedom fund he generates one hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, all the way up to a million he gets a million in backer funding just from his fans and every time he says we're only going to do 250,000 and then they hit the target and he says well now that that one's done and now we need now we actually need to be able to use live stream capability long story short it turned out he'd purchased a white paper out of the box like daily motion live backend so he'd said he was getting custom built servers distributed across the blockchain to be to not be able to be taken down by anybody and it was just someone, someone's white, white label, use it as you wish video streaming platform that he'd put a front end on. So that turned out to be bollocks. And he got called out a lot on YouTube for that. Now he's running for the mayor of London and wow. has been for quite a while. And he's going around in this tour bus and he's doing all of these vlogs. And today I got sent a video of him doing Sadiq Khan who's the current mayor of London and Brian's calling him out and saying like you you you're nothing I'm I'm everything and it's always very he falls over himself when he's talking as well he's quite slick when he does interviews but he obviously is struggling a little bit with the politics side so he uploaded a six minute long live stream of him hitting a punching bag a couple of days ago (laughs) like quite badly as well it didn't look like it wasn't Floyd Mayweather and then this morning this morning I got sent a video of him doing lengths of butterfly stroke and said, Sadiq, I know that you won't debate me in person because you're scared, so why don't we have a swimming race? And then he does a <laughs> and then he does a length of butterfly and turns around to the camera and says, like, let's go at the end. It is it's such a grift. It is so bad. And what we've seen, and this is something that seems to be a common thread between all of the people we've spoken about today, their ability to pivot and change direction incredibly quickly like a pinball. So Brian was all about getting the information about, out about COVID. Then he was all about freedom and free speech. And then he was all about being the mayor of London. And then he was all about psychedelics for a while and plant medicine. And then he was doing a tri- tri- triathlon. And then he's doing this and then he's doing that. And um, yeah, this ADHD inability to focus on one track at one time i guess that's the digital equivalent of the snake oil salesman going from town to town because Mm -hmm. as they move on from the last grifty project onto the new one you actually think oh well maybe 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 he's changed now or maybe this is new and this is different and this is a different grift Mm -hmm. um but you you should have a look at some of the videos about brian you will adore them
1: I will, but I, you know, I have to say this. I, I hate to bring it back to Donald Trump, but this is literally the Donald Trump playbook, right? He made—he was never a good businessman, but he convinced the world that he was because he was on The Apprentice. And then he drew people, they know how to capitalize on outrage, and they know how to say what people want to hear and, you know, stoke this um, excitement, right? So whether it was the birther movement, uh, you know, accusing Barack Obama of having been born in Kenya, that's kind of how he made his name in politics, Uh you know, and it, the most recent grift of his right as he left office, he was pushing this idea that the election had been stolen, which it clearly was not. You know, there's no, no rational way to say that that happened. Um, he started scamming his own followers. He was fundraising off of this lie, saying, "You know, we got to save the U.S. You know, we have to save the government. Um, donate money. We'll we'll do the right thing." And that's why all these people stormed the Capitol on January sixth because they truly believed that Donald Trump was going to be alongside them, um, you know, ushering in this revolution. But what they didn't know was, um, as part of this fundraising effort, there was like a very small box that you had to deliberately uncheck because it made your donation a recurring donation. So all of these like diehard Trump supporters realized that they were getting billed weekly or and monthly, and it just did not stop. He bankrupted like a number of his followers, and there's really no—I mean, some people are getting refunds, but there's not a lot of recourse for that because they didn't opt out. Um, so I, I see a lot of parallels, uh, in those stories um, and a lot of us politicians, sadly are following suit. You know, there was one woman, Marjorie Taylor green, who recently posted a video of herself doing chin-ups as like a challenge to the liberal politicians. Uh, it's getting really absurd.
0: Yeah. I'd heard about that, although I haven't seen it. it it's in,
1: horrifying. It, is it? Her, well, just her form. I don't think that's how you're supposed to do pull-ups. Oh
0: dear. Um, <laughs> yeah it's um it's so bizarre the cult of personality now has overtaken the thing especially in politics right like i'm okay i'm I'm all right with businessmen are always supposed to be charismatic front men for the rock band that is their company i'm I'm kind of okay with that politicians are supposed to be statesman like i don't i i want i want the the most autistic nerd who understands <laughs> everything down to the finest yes i want the finance minister to live in excel or he doesn't he just he goes to bed with excel he wakes up with excel that's all i want and it would appear now because using things like instagram and and um snapchat and tiktok for these fourth wall break uh views perspectives into people's lives like will probably know the president's dog's name. Like, we're not supposed to know that. That's not supposed to be important. And all of the time... They
1: have, they have an Instagram account, by the way, Major and Champ.
0: No way. Well, <laughs> I mean, do, I didn't yeah. know that, but th- th- that's precisely what I mean. So the guy that's in charge of managing that, because it will resonate with the voter base better to have this personable, that person could have had a job... Doing something that actually adds some value to the country, you know, doing something that's actually going to move the economy or the, the whatever it might be. They could do something that isn't taking photos of dogs, right? Mm-hmm. And um I'm all for photos of dogs, but not of the president's dogs. Like just they should be they should be left in their in the basket. Um where do you think this goes? Rolling it forward, is this a snake that's going to eat its own tail? Or is it still going up? Are we close to the precipice here?
1: I don't know. I mean, this is a continuation. What you're saying about, you know, how we should pick politicians reminds me dating back to when the first presidential debate was televised between Nixon and Kennedy. And it said that the turning point in that is that Nixon was very sweaty and unattractive on TV, whereas Kennedy was, you know, matte and, and had a little makeup on and looked good. And that was really like a deciding factor in that election, I don't. I think the the genie is out of the bottle in that sense. Um, but as consumers and as voters, maybe we can try and be a little more critical and aware of what values we're supporting and espousing. I know that going into writing this book, I wasn't aware of how deeply affected by these things. Um, I had become and I literally wrote a book about it and I'm still falling for these things you know I'm gonna fall for an Instagram scam I know it Um, But I can try and be better about it And so I think we can all try to be a little more critical Maybe
0: a little bit more savvy and canny online perhaps. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree Uh, if people want to check out more of your work and keep up to date, where should they go?
1: um, you can follow me on twitter at gbluestone G underscore Bluestone or on Instagram at G Bluestone. And my book is in all major bookstores.
0: It will be linked in the show notes below, as always. Gabrielle, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you. This was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed our discussion.